This is Faster Forward from Northern Trust Asset Servicing, where we explore stories, insights, and lessons learned from leaders and innovators that are driving transformation across their industries. This is Faster Forward from Northern Trust Asset Servicing. In this podcast, we explore stories, insights, and lessons learned from leaders and innovators who are driving transformation across their industries. I'm Patrice Sikora. And with me is our special guest host for today's episode, Pete Cherowich, President of Asset Servicing at Northern Trust. He's going to be stepping in to close out this season on data. Pete, thanks for being here with us today. You are no stranger to the podcast. Very happy to have you back. And uh, we're really glad to see you. Hi, nice to see everybody. Now, before I actually hand it over to Pete completely, I'd also like to introduce our very fascinating guest, Mark Brody. Professor of Business at Columbia University, author of Every Shot Counts, Using the Revolutionary Strokes Gained Approach to Improve Golf Performance and Strategy, and a member of the USGA Handicap Research Team. Mark will discuss his career as a professor at Columbia Business School, teaching courses on finance, business, and sports analytics. He will also share insights from his book, where he applied his analytical skills from the financial world to uncover the secrets of the game of golf and explain how he is helping students and golfers across the globe move faster forward through the power of data. Mark, thanks for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm looking forward to this. All right, Pete, you are all teed up. So take us down the fairway. Excellent. Thanks. Mark, I was, you know, first of all, thanks so much for being here today. We're very excited to have you here to close out this first season of our podcast which is all about the power of data. As a golfer myself, albeit very terrible, I am excited about our conversation. I think the best place to start though is for you to tell us a little bit about yourself and your career thus far. Well, I'm, uh, my day job is being a professor at Columbia Business School. So I have a really great job. I get to decide what I wanna work on, who I want to work with and when I want to work. So being an academic is uh, incredibly uh, rewarding. I get to teach business school students that go out very shortly into the world and, and make a big, big difference. Uh, I've kind of moved my teaching from financial analytics to uh, business and get to teach sports analytics. How much more fun could that be? So in my, you know, off, off my uh, full-time job, I've sort of got interested in, in, golf analytics, and I got to marry my professional and personal passion, passions together. So my professional interest in data and analytics and my personal interest in playing the game of golf, even though I'm not so good either, but I, I realized I could put these two things together and it's been a wild ride and kind of living the dream. And, and is sports analytics the most full class all the time? It's quite popular, but there's a lot of popular classes, but not too many of the business school students want to be in, you know, get a job in sports analytics, we use the, the class as a way to teach different analytical tools and concepts and methods. And sports is a nice application area because it's fun, there's available data, and it's easy to talk about and easy to expose the, uh, the concept. So it's really a vehicle for talking about analytics in general and modeling and, and the value of data. Well, that's a good segue. So people refer to you as the father of strokes gained. Uh, for listeners that aren't familiar, can you tell us a little bit more about the strokes gained analysis? Sure, so in golf, the lowest score is, is better. 
And one of the ways you can measure performance on you know professional events, if a player has a score of four on a difficult par four, where the scoring average might be 4.3, then a score of four is three-tenths of a stroke better than the field. So they're actually moving up the leaderboard because they have a lower score than the field average. So we'd say they gained three-tenths of a stroke. And so that's kind of come into the vernacular, but really where strokes gain comes to the fore is the ability to decompose gains and losses in scores into individual shot categories. So did that three-tenths of a stroke gain come from a better drive, a better approach shot, a better putt, a better sandwich shot? And how does that sort of add up over the course of a round and over the course of a season? So it's kind of this uh, incremental analysis. Where are players making gains or losses relative to, to a benchmark? So in, in one sense, that sounds like simple math. But yet I know that you use the same rigorous statistical methods used by Quants on Wall Street and applied it. Well, what made you decide to apply it to golf? And as a, as a sports fan in general, I just thought about Billy Bean and baseball. And so how different is it from that type of approach? So one of the nice things about teaching a course in sports analytics is learning about how analytics are applied in different sports. And it turns out that strokes gained is analogous to the points added in football, expected runs added in baseball. It, every sport basically has an analogous stat to strokes gained in golf. So if you take a look at hockey and soccer, they have a notion called expected goals. So when a player takes a shot, either in hockey, shooting the puck toward the nets, or in soccer, you know, what Americans call soccer, <laughs> the rest of the world calls, calls football, you know, you take, take a shot. Some shots are easier, some shots are more difficult, and it may go in or may not. So the outcome is either a goal or a miss. It's either a zero or one. But if you took 100 shots from the same location with the same difficulty, maybe you'd score 20% of the time. So a goal then is 0.8. A goal a shot that goes in the goal is 0.8 goals better than expected, and a miss is 0.2 worse than expected. And so a lot of the interesting modeling is figuring out from a given situation, how difficult is the shot? And that could be a shot in golf, a shot in soccer, a shot in hockey, could be a play in football or basketball. The math sort of comes in with figuring out that expected value. And then the arithmetic is easy because <laughs> you're just taking one minus 0.2 or 0.2 minus zero. That, the arithmetic is easy. The uh, the kind of uh, learning or analytics comes into analyzing the data and putting it all together to try and figure out, well, how difficult was this really? And that benchmarks allow, allows you to measure performance. Were you better than the benchmark or worse than the benchmark and by how much? How, when you, how much data do you have to crank through in order to get that benchmark of 0.8 or you know, 0.2 shots gained or whatever? So in soccer, you need hundreds or thousands of shots in, in, in golf, we have millions of shots per year, a million shots per year on the PGA tour, which is plenty to, to estimate these, uh, these benchmarks. And it's also interesting to see how do the benchmark change over time, you know, players getting better and if so, by, by how much. And so that's, there's a lot of interesting kind of questions that, that uh, come out of this data and this analysis, both, how are players evolving? How are courses evolving? And players, of course, use it to, to analyze their strengths and weaknesses in order to, to get better. 
And so you mentioned um, Billy Bean and, and baseball and, and football, and some of the uses are uh, are kind of kind of similar. That in in baseball you can use metrics to figure out which players are overvalued or undervalued, and that was the whole idea. When you take that in conjunction with a player's salary, <laughs> that if this player is performing well according to some advanced or better metric, but their price or their salary is cheaper, then that would be an undervalued player that you could trade for. And so the Moneyball story was, you know, people were looking at batting average when in turn turns out that on base and slugging percentage was a better metric. So well, if you, you take, turn that to, sorry, if you turn that to golf then, what what yep. interesting what interesting thing or myth did you bust in, in, in analyzing golf? Well, the biggest expression in golf, the most famous expression is you drive for show and putt for dough. And so drive for show means, you know, you hit this majestic 300 yard towering drive and it looks great. But what matters is, do you sink the putt? Because if you get to the green and you miss a five footer, what, what value was that, that 300 yard drive? And so most people believe that putting was the most important skill. And that's what sort of makes golf interesting to analyze is you want to shoot the lowest score, but there's different kinds of skill. Hitting it far is a skill. Hitting approach shots close to the green is a skill. Hitting putts in the hole is a skill. And they're very different because anybody can has the strength to hit a 60-foot putt. Not everybody has the talent, the coordination, and the skill to hit a 300-yard drive but all of these skills are are necessary and if you're a professional golfer and even an amateur golfer you want to say well how do I want to divide up my time to become better because we all know driving it further is better hitting it closer is better thinking more putts is better but what's the relative contribution of these different types of skills and so the myth was that putting was the most important and it turned out when you analyze the data through this lens of strokes gained where you can break down performance into different shot categories, it turns out that the most important category was approach shots. And within that category, approach shots from about 100 to 200 yards were what separated the best pros from average pros. And that was surprising to most people. Uh, people point to Tiger Woods and what a great putter he was, and he was a great putter, but Tiger Woods most lethal potent weapon was his approach shots he was in the top five year after year after year after year even in the fire hydrant year or two he was in the top five in in approach shots and that turned out to be the the toughest thing to measure with traditional old style data which just counted did you hit a fairway or not how many putts did you take well how do you measure approach shots and with the availability of better data, which in this case was called shot link data, it measures where does every shot start and where does every shot end. And with that detailed granular data, you can get these much, much better insights. Whereas in the past, you counted, did you hit the fairway or not? Did you hit the green or not? And how many putts did you take? And that was easy if you're just counting and it was easier in the kind of pre digital age, but not really good for analyzing performance.
So, so let's take my favorite approach shot or, or maybe drive. I can't figure it out. So I, I was lucky enough to play Riviera a number of times and I always use driver on number 10. Of course, for me, that was a layoff, a layup. But uh -huh. the question is, how are the pros approaching this now that they have a more mathematical understanding of the risk and reward? Yeah, so that's really interesting. I think there's lots of connections between kind of uh, financial applications and golf strategy, which is it is a trade-off between risk and reward, between mean and variance. And here, actually, the analysis is, is pretty, pretty simple. It's almost back to arithmetic. With the shot tracking data, you could look in 2004 and you could see what was the average score of players who laid up and what was the average score of players who went for the green. So this is a drivable par four for the pros meaning they could take out a driver and try and hit the green in one shot, which was a little risky because if you miss the green, you could be in the trees, you could be in a, in a couple of difficult spots, or you could hit an easy layup shot off the tee, an easy wedge to the green, and then you'd have a birdie putt. So you take a couple easy shots. And then, so which of those two is better? Well, you could just, there's a lot of ways to do the analysis, but the simplest one is you could take a look at what happened in 2004? And the players that went for the green were about two-tenths or a quarter of a stroke better than the players who laid up. And to put that in context, you're not changing a player's skill. This is on one hole where at the end of a tournament, which is 72 holes, you could win or lose by a stroke or two. So one shot out of 270 or shots can make a big difference in the outcome of the tournament. So a quarter of a shot just by strategy on one hole is enormous. So over the course of four rounds, that's almost a shot worth of difference playing a suboptimal versus an optimal strategy. And about two thirds of the players laid up and about a third of the players went for it in 2004. But with Scott Link and this availability of data and some analysts that can analyze this and, and, and look at the data, it became sort of clearer that going for it was the better strategy. But it took more than 15 years as the tide slowly turned from two-thirds, one-third, then it got to 50-50. And in the last couple of years, it's almost 100-0, 100% going for it and almost nobody laying up. Maybe it's 95%, 5%. So they, they, they saw the light. <laughs> but that's interesting though, because when you look at a change management, right? When you first used the strokes gain method, was there much resistance from the golf pro professionals about this methodology and implementing? It seems sort of obvious, but what was the resistance like? So it was more who, who accepted it first, I would say, because in terms of the PGA Tour, they just published a stat, which in the first time around was stroke gain putting. But the initial adopters were ones that were looking for an edge, and that included Luke Donald, who became the number one player shortly after this, and Jason Day and Justin Rose and a number of other top players sort of had themselves or their coaches or their caddies that were looking for an edge. And those players, they're, they're fighting for a tenth of a stroke here and a five hundredths of a stroke there because over the course of a season, that can add up to millions of dollars in earnings. 
And in an event, it can one stroke can make the difference between making the cut and getting zero after two rounds. It can make the difference between not just at the top end becoming number one or not, but at 125, there's a cutoff. The top 125 players keep their PGA Tour card and they're exempt for the next year. They can play in basically all the events. If you're outside the top 125, well, maybe you return to the minor league Corn Ferry Tour. And so there's also a cutoff there where a stroke here or there makes an enormous difference. So a stroke matters throughout the season for all sorts of things, wins and ranking points and, and money, but it also matters further down in, in the list. And so players started to realize that it's hard to figure out where do you, what's the value of hitting it 20 yards further? What's the value of working on my putting versus working on my approach shots? What's the value of working on short putts versus medium or long putts? Players only had a finite amount of time to get better. They have other commitments. There's a finite number of hours in the day. They have a lot of demands on their time. And so when they're practicing, they want to figure out what are the lowest hanging fruit. And stroke gain analysis allows you to pick out with kind of laser-like focus where are a player's weaknesses and where are the biggest opportunities to get better. That's a good segue. So let's get down to it. The real reason I wanted to do this conversation was how do I get better? So as, as an 18 <laughs> handicap, it was clear from reading your book, right, that I need to work on my shots outside of 100 yards. But do you think it's better for an 18 handicapper to work on their approach shot or their drives? So I would try and bifurcate my answer into, do you have a short-term goal or a long-term goal? And I think long-term, if you want to cut 10 strokes off your score, then you have to think about the longer-term goals of hitting the ball further and hitting your approach shots better. So the number one thing would be between 100 and 200 yards, think of 150 yards, whatever club you use there, six, seven, eight iron, whatever, you need to get better there because the biggest contributor to dropping 10 strokes from your score would be better approach shots and specifically in that area. Driving it 10, 20 yards further is huge and that also helps with your approach shots. So longer term, you just, you can't get 10 shots better by improving your putting. <laughs> it's not, it's just not possible. You say, oh, maybe I'm a terrible putter. I put, I three putt three, four times around. Okay. Well, chances are you're not going to cut that to zero, but if you cut it from three or four, three putts around to one, all right, now you've saved two or three shots. Great. Where are the other seven or eight coming from? And they're not going <laughs> to, so you kind of, you kind of use that up. But number one, the easiest and the lowest hanging fruit for amateurs is respect the hazards. Don't hit tee shots out of bounds. Don't hit approach shots into water. And you say, well, I'm not good enough. Well, out of bounds on a course is at the boundary of the course. It's usually on the right <laughs> or if, if, if it's there, it's on the right or it's on the left. Well, if the out-of-bounds is on the right, you can aim far enough away from the out-of-bounds so you can reduce the chance of hitting it out-of-bounds close to zero. Most players don't do that. They see the fairway. They try and hit it straight down the middle of the fairway. And if they 
hit the slice off to the right and it goes out of bounds, the reaction is normally, all right, I'm not that good. That happens in my foursome pretty often. That's to be expected. No, even if you're an 18 handicap, you can change your strategy in a way to respect the hazards and an out-of-bound costs you two shots. So avoiding the out-of-bounds, even if it means aiming into the left rough away from the out-of-bounds is going to save you a shot or two around just, just by better strategy. So I would say longer term, you need to hit it further. You need to hit your approach shots better. Short term, it is good to work on putting. And so many amateurs don't take lessons. And when they do take a lesson, it's rarely a putting lesson. But within putting, three to 10 feet is much better to work on than, say, 15 to, to 30 feet. There's a bigger bang for your buck in the short putts than there, in in the, than there are in the medium and longer range putts. All right. Well, thank you. Well, I, I am curious in terms of what's next for you. Are, are you working with the PGA Tour? I know they just released some new statistics. Are, are you going to write another book? What's next? <laughs> well, when I started this, I thought, oh, this would be a, a research project that would lead to one or two uh, papers, and that would sort of be it. But it turned out that it just snowballed, and there's just more and more and more questions and different things that I've been working on. So I'd say the latest thing that I've been working on is the official world golf rankings, which changed in August uh, last year, August 2022, which was a, a long time uh, project and a long time in coming. So that involved a step going back 10, 10 years ago with a colleague of mine, Dick Rendleman. We showed that the official world golf rankings were biased. And that there was this incredible inequity that was built into, into the system. So finally, many years later, I proposed a, a change to the way the, the ranking calculations are done. And that was uh, went through a long process and was vetted and analyzed and then finally approved and, and announced <laughs> and then implemented last year. And so that was a, sort of a long time project. But uh, the official World Golf Rankings was one thing, but I've also been working with players on the PGA Tour with the United States Golf Association, analyzing the impacts of driving distances and what impact does that have on the game. So there's no and working with players, trying to help players get uh, get better. So there's no shortage of, of interesting questions. And it really kind of goes back to, I think we share this belief that uh, data analytics together are a powerful tool to improve performance, whether it's in, in business or in sports. Excellent. Well, let's finish up with the last question. I'll, I'll introduce it by saying my favorite course that I played was Cypress Point. Um, I have to admit, I was saddened to learn that for the ocean holes, the cliff and the beach are part of the course. In other words, when I hit the ball in the ocean, the caddy said, you can look for your ball or, or declare it lost and take your two-stroke penalty. Um, I, I'm curious, how often do you get to golf now? And more importantly, what's your favorite course? So for a number of years, I'd made a promise to myself that I'm going to play more golf. But it turned out the more golf research I did, the less I played. But uh, I got better, and I'd say in terms of playing more golf the last uh, couple of years, I've actually taken my own advice and uh, got back to playing a little bit more regularly in the summer, playing once or twice a weekend. So that's been great fun. There's a lot of courses I like, but around this neck of the woods, it's, it's fun to play a course like Bethpage Black because they've had the U.S. Open there. They've uh, 
had a number of uh, PGA Tour events, and it's just fun to play a course where you've seen it on TV and you've also played it in person because you really understand the size of the greens, the difficulty of, of, the, of the shots. And so I think that's one of the differentiators between golf and, and other sports is you can play these courses that the pros have played where they have all the, the history there. So that's a, a real thrill. Excellent. Well, Mark, thank you for the time today. It was, it was fantastic to hear about your experiences and learn more about the strokes gained approach. I know you've got lots of golfers in our audience wanting to read your book and improve their game. Thank you so much for having me. And it's, uh, it's always fun talking about golf analytics and more generally sort of uh, data and analytics. Excellent. Patrice, I'll hand it over to you. Thanks for having me. Well, thank you, Pete. This was a wonderful and fun discussion and really a great episode to close out our season one on data. I mean, golf, who knew? So we now look forward to season two, which will be focused on digital assets. To our listeners, look for new episodes in the coming weeks. And as always, thank you for listening to Faster Forward from Northern Trust Asset Servicing. Thank you for listening to our podcast. Subscribe to Faster Forward from your favorite podcast app to be automatically notified of new episodes. This audio podcast is being provided for informational and educational purposes only and is not meant to be taken as investment advice or a recommendation of any specific investment product or strategy. The information does not take your financial situation, investment objective, or risk tolerance into consideration. Listeners, including professionals, should under no circumstances rely upon this information as a substitute for their own research or for obtaining specific legal, investment, accounting, or tax advice from their own counsel. Northern Trust Corporation, Head Office 50 South LaSalle Street, Chicago, Illinois, 60603. USA Incorporated with limited liability in the U.S.